0: Do Psalm 42 and 43. So go ahead and flip there. I'm going to pray for us before we open God's Word. Father, I thank you for an opportunity to come together to study your Word. Father, we are broken creatures, we are furrowed. Like the fields, were torn open like the dirt that's being prepared for seed. We are aching and longing for the yield that your word will bring. And we want to see the harvest that you will bring from our hurts, from our pain, from our grief. I ask that you would teach us this morning how to uh, participate in that harvest how to plant the seeds, how to water the seeds in our hearts that will bring forth life. Father, help us to abide in You as You abide in us through the Lord Jesus Christ, through Your Holy Spirit. Let our our branches bear You fruit. Cut off the branches that aren't bearing You fruit and help us to abide in You, because as the rain and the snow fall down from the sky and they water the earth and they bring forth life, they don't return void. So shall the Word of the Lord be. Let Your Word come down like rain and snow and water our hearts. Let it not return void, so that we can be led in peace and go out with joy from our sorrows, so that we can see the hills and the trees raise their voices and clap their hands and rejoice to see the revelation of the sons of god father the world is aching and groaning to see what you're going to do through and with your people and i ask that you would reveal that in us that that instead of the thorns, instead of the pain, instead of the agony of this world, the cypress would tower, the myrtle would bloom with a thousand flowers, that we would see the fruit, of, and we would become the fruit-bearing trees planted by streams of water flowing from Eden, flowing from Jesus Christ, so that we can make a name for our God. It will never be cut off. Lead us forth in peace. And we may go out with joy. Change us by your word through Christ our Lord. Amen. So last week, we focused on the first part of grief, looking at the fact that God grieves. He's a grieving God. That's part of his identity. It's actually the first emotional thing that we learn about God in the entire Bible, that He is a God who grieves, and He is grieved by human sin, human rebellion, how humans take His good creation and twist it in ways that He never intended for it to be twisted. And that grieves Him. Yes, it angers Him. Uh, we looked at uh, Genesis chapter 6, the flood, and traditionally, we all tend to think of that as, a, as an outpouring of God's anger, right? How many times have you heard the flood referenced as an outpouring of God's wrath? But in that context, what emotion is it an outpouring of? Before he's angry with sin, he's grieving over it. And we want to be shaped by that knowledge of God. We want to be shaped to learn how to grieve the way God does and the way that God has designed us to grieve. Because we are in a world beset by sin. And so grief in a world broken by sin is a part of our experience. You're going to experience it. It's going to be a part of your life. And we need to learn how best to handle it. So that's what we're moving to today. Last week we talked about God's grief. This, way, this week we're talking about good grief. How can grief be good? How can it be a good thing? Well, in a broken world, We ought to grieve about the brokenness. Grief is meant to communicate that we've lost something, and that loss has left our souls wounded, and that wound, that feeling of inward pain is supposed to motivate us to seek and examine the wound to determine the course of action that will promote healing. And that course of action involves connecting to God. It always involves connecting to God and connecting to other people. Now, the Bible has a name for this sort of course of grieving, this, this, this remedy for grief, this cure of grief. It has a name for this process that we're supposed to go through, and it's very helpful. In fact, there's a whole book of the Bible named for this process. Lamentation. The lament. And when, as we've been looking at the book of Psalms, which uh, the, I took the name for this series, The Anatomy of the Soul, from what John Calvin says about the Psalms that contained in the Psalms the anatomy is an anatomy of the whole human soul. That you can, you can determine, you can look at every emotion, every reaction, you can see it there and how to deal with it. Now, what emotion predominates in the laments of this, in the, in the Psalms. Now, at least 50 of the 150 Psalms are pure laments. They are purely dealing with somebody grieving over something. And there's at least 20 to 30 more that have lament elements built into them. So that's nearly half of the entire book, of the biggest book in the Bible, is dedicated to how to deal with grief. How to properly lament now does anybody just right off the top of your head has anybody ever been taught how to go through the process of lamenting now this is the thing that the bible emphasizes by giving you half of the biggest book in it is dedicated to this but you've probably never been taught You've probably heard things like, just get over it. If you're grieving, here's how you fix it. Just get over it. Just hope in God. Just hope in God. Just fix your hope on Him and get over it. Just change your mind and walk on. And that short circuits the process of grieving that God has designed and given us thorough instruction in. And so I think that's dishonoring to God to just walk away from our grief and refuse to engage, because it's, made, it's meant to cause us to engage with God and to go to Him. So we're going to take a look at lament, lament psalms in general, and then we're going to get down into Psalm 42 and 43, which are uh, they're separate in your Bible, but originally they, were, uh, they appeared to be um, at least sequel. Like, 43 seems to be at least a sequel to 42. If not, they were one single psalm at one point in time. That the editors, the, the people who put the book of Psalms together, those people inspired by the Holy Spirit, split them apart for a reason. We won't get into all that. But just so you know why we're looking at two psalms instead of one, and we're looking at them as if they were one. They're meant to be read together. Uh, so first, let me explain what a lament is. It is the means by which God teaches us to grieve like those who have hope. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we grieve but not like those who have no hope. So it is where hope and grieving is where hope and hopelessness meet. And here's how it does that. The psalmist complains to God. (laughs) He brings his complaint to God. That's the central and the main part of a lament. You take your complaint to God. He may be troubled about his own thoughts and actions. And you see this in uh, a series of seven psalms, which are called the penitential psalms, dealing with sin. The psalmist is grieved over the fact that he has grieved God, that he has hurt God, that he has injured his relationship with God through sin. And so those psalms deal with how to deal with that. That's the psalmist's main complaint. I've sinned against you and I need a solution to that. Or the psalmist might complain about the actions of others against him. You'll see in the, in the uh, lament psalms over and over, there's always an enemy of some kind that the psalmist wants to be delivered from. Now, sometimes that enemy is within. <laughs> sometimes that enemy is without, and sometimes it's a combination. But there's usually, and I, I think always, I say always, Any time a preacher says always, take it with a grain of salt. There are usually exceptions, but there's usually an enemy. Third, the psalmist, and this is the most radical, this is the most mind-blowing, the psalmist may complain against God himself. In the psalms we're looking at here today, we will read lines (laughs) like, My soul is cast down. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forgotten me? Think of Psalm 22 as the most uh, well known of these complaints against God. My God, Jesus announces from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are complaints against God. Now, you might think that is crazy, and rightly so at first, right? What is, what's the sin? Can anybody tell me, in the wilderness, when God is taking Israel through the wilderness, what is the one sin, what is the one thing they keep doing over and over and over that He keeps bringing His judgment on them because they keep doing this one thing? Grumbling. Complaining. Grumbling and Complaining. But now in the Psalms it seems to be that God is saying, complain. I want you to complain. How do those two go together? Well, on the surface, they seem like they don't. They seem like contradictions, right? But who were the Israelites? What were the how were the Israelites complaining? To each other. To each other. They complain to each other about God as if He could not hear them, as if He was not present, as if He had not promised to deliver them and bring them great things, as if He were a liar. But what does the psalmist do? The psalmist in the laments, they complain about God to God. See, God is saying, complain, please complain, but bring your complaint to Me. Don't complain about Me to other people. That's gossip. When you have an interaction with another person that goes badly. What are you supposed to do? Matthew, uh, Jesus teaches in Matthew 18, go to your brother if you have a complaint against him. Now, you're going to show that kind of uh, kindness, that kind of respect to your brother, but not to God. You're going to go to somebody else and complain about him. He says, no, come to me and complain. Let me hear your complaint. And that's a crucial difference. That lets us know that grief is not only... It's meant to communicate to us, it's meant to motivate us, but it's meant to motivate us to come into God's presence with our complaint. So grief, more than any other emotion, is a summons from God to come into His presence and interact with Him. Because what is grief? Let me answer that in one second, because I want to list these seven parts, because this is going to be important, and you may want to write these down because I want you to learn how to lament. I don't want to just look at a lament. I want you to learn how to do this in your life, because when you grieve, you need to make a regular practice of this when you feel sad. And this needs to become a regular practice, so that when the big grief comes, when the big sorrow comes, you practice at it, and you don't have to think through, how do I handle this well? It's instinct. And so there are these seven parts of a lament, and we'll look at them in Psalm 42 and 43. First, there's an invocation, and the invocation is just an acknowledgement of God. It's an acknowledgement that God is my God, and He is going to hear me. I have an audience with Him. The psalmist recognizes that God has called me into His presence, that He has given me an audience before Him, and that I'm going to call Him to the table at that. It's like how, uh, who can wake up a king at three in the morning? who can come into the king's chamber at three in the morning and say, give me a drink of water, without being instantly put to death? His kids. (laughs) If the king's daughter, the king's son, comes in, his little two-year-old, three-year-old says, daddy, I'm thirsty, the king says, okay. Uh, He might get up himself if he's a very lowly and humble king like Jesus. (laughs) Or he might say, servant, go get my son a drink of water. But He's going to get the kid a drink of water. The kid has a right. The son has a right. The child has a right to come into the Father's presence. And he is saying, the invocation in the lament is you acknowledging your right to come before God. Jesus starts His instructional prayer this way. Start this way. Our Father in heaven. Start by acknowledging that you're a son, you're a daughter, you're a child of God, and He's your Father and He's given you the right to talk to Him. Jesus says this amazing thing in John chapter 17. He says, No longer will you ask Me to talk to the Father for you. He says, From now on, you'll go to the Father yourself directly. Through Jesus, but you go directly to Him because He's your Father. So that's the invocation. It's acknowledgement that no matter what's going on, God is my Father. And that's where they start usually. And then wrapped up into that is a plea for help. These are often very short and often repeated in the laments. Uh, Some of them are just, God help. (laughs) And sometimes a lament in the midst of something that's causing suffering or causing pain, uh, emotional pain, that is the extent of the lament. God help me. Father, it hurts. Father, I'm in pain. And we can't go any further than that. But we got to keep coming back to that, making that plea, because often the pleas and the laments are repeated. They become the refrains, and we'll see that in Psalm 42 and 43. Third, there's the complaint. Every lament. This is the central part, the complaint. We talked about that. Bring your complaint to God. Tell Him in bold and no uncertain terms because the psalmists don't back down from saying things like, you've forgotten me. Lord, you made promises. This was your idea. I did not come up with this idea. You made me and you you promised me that you would be with me and now I don't have a sense of your presence. Now it appears that you've abandoned me. My enemies are surrounding me. They're putting me to death. They're nailing me to a cross. Where are you? Complain. (laughs) Complain to God. Fourth, there's a confession of sin or an assertion of innocence. And that'll make more sense. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get into the verse. But there's usually a confession of sin or an assertion of innocence. And that's important because you're acknowledging that on the grand scheme of things, what you're suffering might be for your own sin. What you're going through, you're acknowledging, look, I'm a sinner before you. I'm a rebel before you. And I need to be cleansed from my sin, and I need to have a restored relationship with you for anything of this complaint to be dealt with. And so, Lord, search me, know me, uh, expose to me, open my eyes to see how I might be sinning against you. And then this assertion of innocence, Uh, there's there's almost a, some commentators on the laments say this very interesting thing. We do this thing in our uh, reform, in a lot of reform liturgies, right? We say, here's the reading of the law, and we'll read something from the law. And then what follows that in some reform liturgies? Often the confession of sin. We hear God's law, we're convicted of the sin, we confess that we've sinned, and then what follows? What always follows in Reformed liturgies is the confession of sin. An assurance of pardon. A reminder that in Jesus Christ you are righteous. You stand before God blameless, innocent. And... There's an, in laments, there's a turn, always, so quickly, the turn goes from, I'm being persecuted, everything's falling apart, my life is being destroyed, and, and my sin is a part of it, and, and it's tearing me apart from the inside, it's rotting my bones, and then they often, then there's just this turn that seems to just take this wild swing, but I hope in you. You're my rock. I'm putting my trust in you. Now, some have said that a lot of the Psalms were, they were a part of the liturgy of the people of Israel. And so after a confession of sin, if it was a public lament, they assume that there must have been some pause in the song, some moment where the priest comes out and goes, the Lord has accepted our sacrifice. The Lord accepts the gift that He has given that we've offered back to Him. He accepts it and He forgives us for the sake of this shed blood of this blameless lamb. And so you are assured that you are pardoned. And so that is what kind of makes the turn. So this confession of sin, assurance of innocence, or assurance of pardon is the middle part. Fifth, and this is the hard part for a lot of us, there's, a, there's usually a curse. There's, there's often a curse pronounced on the enemies. This is called imprecation. The, there are some psalms that are centered just on this idea of cursing. That they are, They're called imprecatory psalms. And... I could do a whole 30 minutes on how they're both appropriate and inappropriate for us in the New Covenant, but I think when we are praying and recognizing that we have human enemies that might be persecuting us, cursing, pronouncing the curse on our enemies should start with lord this person who's persecuting me he's either going to die for his sin or jesus is going to die for it. jesus will have died for his sin lord instead of cursing him please curse jesus in his place please bring him bring my enemy bring them to faith so that the curse may fall the curse that rightly would fall on them would fall on jesus Because that's what we experience. The curse that would rightly fall on you, rightly fall on me, fell on him. And so that's how we sort of use the imprecatory psalms as Christians and the imprecatory cursing elements of lament. Sixth, and this is the the hard turn, confidence in God's response. After after confessing sin and, and, and going through the complaint, the psalmist expresses that the Lord has, is going to keep His promise that He will respond. Whether that be before or after death. <laughs> that Even if you slay me, I will hope in you, is kind of the attitude of these confidences, these statements of confidence. Seventh, they usually end with a hymn or a blessing. There's only one lament that omits this element. Now, not all these elements are present in every lament. And and they're not always in this order. But every element is present in every... But most of these elements are present in every lament. And the hymn or the blessing at the end is always present in every lament except for one. And it's Psalm 88. And it ends with, Darkness is my only friend. So there's even a place in the Christian life to, grit, to be so beset with grief that, you, that when you get to the end of this, you can't turn. Your heart still can't lift up to God and says, I'm still in, in, trapped in darkness. And the only friend I have, the only thing that can give me some peace and some comfort is to just hide away. There's a place for that, but the Lord brings the light into our darkness. And He doesn't shy away from us acknowledging that kind of thing to Him, even that level of depth of darkness. He doesn't say, don't go there. Now, it's only one (laughs) for that reason. I think the proportion is correct. There are times when the darkness won't seem to lift. But you continue to go through this process of lamenting and the promise is the idea is that eventually it will that god will be faithful to his promises to lift the darkness to heal your wounds if we want to learn how to handle grief and sorrow well you need to learn to use these elements to turn grief into worship to answer the summons to come and be healed and transform your grief and your sorrow into worship now i mean we're all very young people in this life like in in this room mostly and, and myself excluded. Uh, but uh, so many of us have not experienced a lot of grief and sorrow in our lives, I hope. But you live long enough in a broken world and you will experience it. You will be wounded. Jesus said, In this life, you will have trouble. Now, that's a promise from Jesus' lips. Anyone who wants to be righteous, anyone who wants to live a godly life, will be persecuted, will be attacked, will suffer. If you want to glory with Christ, we're going to suffer with Christ. And so you know, like I said earlier, now's the time to get these down because it's coming. Now's the time to learn how to handle it before it comes on you, and then you're scrambling to try to figure out how to handle your grief. So, three things that I want to look at in Psalm 42. One, the condition of grief. What is grief? We talked about this a little bit, but I want to focus on this one word uh, in Hebrew. It's atzav, and it's the general word for grief. It was in Genesis 6.6. It is... It is a synonym for this idea that is repeated in Psalm 42. uh, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in pain? Why are you in grief? This word atzav, in its basic meaning, it just means pain. It means like physical pain. It is the word that that God uses in the curse of Adam and Eve. In the curse, no, not curse of Adam and Eve, the curse of childbirth. You notice God doesn't curse Adam and Eve. He curses the serpent, He curses childbirth, and He curses the land but He doesn't curse His people. And He curses them with what? He curses them with atzav. He curses them with pain. Pain in childbirth. And in pain, Adam would bring forth food from the ground. Now, this physical pain then gets mapped onto, used metaphorically to speak about emotional pain. And that becomes the idea of grief. So grief is to your soul... What physical pain is to your body it 's like you get when you get a bone out of joint, it hurts, and there is acute grief, just like there 's acute pain, and then there 's chronic grief like there's chronic pain. You get a bone out of joint. My mom a few years ago, fell and dislocated both her shoulders, and you know they got them set, they got them whatever uh, fixed up but what happens if you've ever dislocated anything, had your joints, or, uh, or had surgery on a joint, what happens when the, cl- when the clouds roll in and it starts to rain? Ooh, you start to feel it again, right? <laughs> it's, you feel the pain in your joint. It has to do with barometric pressure and air bubbles that are left behind and all of that. But you feel the pain again because that thing has come out of joint. And that's what the chronic pain that happens in our souls. Our souls get out of joint when when we lose various things that are valuable to us, when they're attacked, when they come under pressure, and we come out of joint in our souls, the various parts of us. So grief, like pain, can be acute or chronic. Psalm 42 and 43, they deal with more of the chronic emotional pain. Now, it's important to understand grief and pain of the soul in an acute manner to be able to deal with that. But I think there is, when you read online and you you read articles about like the epidemic of depression in our country and things like that, that's the chronic emotional pain that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are uh, given to us to address. And so I think it's very important for us to understand that. And what you learn from dealing with the chronic pain can be used to, focus in on acute moments of emotional pain. And so that's why I'm choosing to look at these. So let's read them, Psalm 42 and 43. I'm going to read them, and then we will dive in to talk about it. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, Yahweh commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to my rock, my salvation and my God. And now, 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre. O oh God, my God, why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. So, as we look through these psalms, what's amazing about these psalms is he covers every source, every possible source of human grief. So human grief, our grief, comes when we are wounded by the loss of things that we value, things that we need. God has created us as needy beings. We have actual needs. And there are are six of them in this passage, and all six of them are addressed as under threat. And that's why he's grieving. So first, we were made to need peace with God. And this, this need is more important than all the other needs that we have because every other need could be met. You know, you could have all your physiological needs met, you could have all your security needs met, you could have all your, your honor and esteem and belonging and love, and, be, can be, and you're being conformed to the image of Christ. All of those are things that we need, but if you don't have peace with God, none of those matter. So peace with God is kind of the the starting need. So how how, does it, how do we get that from this this passage? Well, one. His felt peace with God is is in, is is being harmed is what that's the that's the central part of his complaint. I'm thirsty. How does he start? I'm like a deer panting for water. Now we make it this idyllic picture of like a deer hopping through a glade and it's slightly thirsty. But a deer, animals in the wild, when they get thirsty, they know where the water is. They can smell it from miles away, and they go right to it, and they drink all they can. And when an animal is thirsty, that can only mean one thing, that there's a drought, that there's no water to be found. And they may search around everywhere, but they're dying of thirst. And a thirsty animal is an animal about to drop dead of thirst because of drought. they, They get dazed. They get disoriented. There's nothing for them to eat because the grass dries up. And he says, my soul is like that. He says, I'm thirsty for you. Now, we often get, that, get this image I did thinking about this, that, oh, what a wonderful thing to thirst for God. I want to thirst for God. And Jesus even says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But the idea, if you're hungry and thirsty for something, it means that you're, it's absent. You are feeling its absence. So he doesn't feel like he has peace with God. He feels like God is his enemy and he's brought a, a time of drought upon him that, that he can't live anymore. He's got no energy. He's got no taste. He can't enjoy anything. He says that my tears are my food. I really want to drink from you from the fountain of your presence, but all I have to drink are my own tears. He has no energy. and We feel this, the everyday grind of life Can sap us of our motivation to even get out of bed, to move forward, because we're not feeling that vital connection to God. And I want you to notice something in this that He that is not included. Looking back at our seven elements, I read this, I read Psalm 42 and 43. What's one this I will tell you it has every element except for one? Can anybody. Pick it out. Give three seconds. One, two, three. There's no confession of sin. There is something like an acknowledgement of innocence. Why, why is this happening to me? But, and there's not an outright acknowledgement of it. There's no confession of sin. Now, what that should tell us is that sometimes seasons of dryness and dis- A sense of disconnection and lack of peace with God isn't, from, isn't because you've sinned. Think about Job and his friends. Thinking about them a lot as you talk about grief. There's no greater example in the Bible. His friends come around him and they say, well, you're in this state. It must be because of you've sinned. Now what are the people saying to this psalmist? What are the people saying to the son of Korah here? Where's your God? Look, you're in this state. You're depressed. You're sorrowful. You're worn out. You're, you're in this exile, uh, far from the place where you want to be. You're miserable. I thought you said that your God was a happy God. I thought you said that you, that you worshiped the happy God. Where is your God now? And that's his, he takes that to God. Where are you? <laughs> Have you forgotten me?" He's taking their question and he's going, Hey, they they have a pretty good point. It seems like you've abandoned me. But that has nothing to do with his sin. He's not led to confess his sin here. So what that tells us about our lives is sometimes your sorrow, sometimes depression isn't linked to sin. Often, and you do need to when you're down, when you're depressed, when when things are, when grief hits, one of the questions you need to ask is, is, What is my contribution to this? How is my sin contributing to my own grief, my own sorrow? Am I creating enmity between myself and God and losing my peace with God because of sin? That's important. But it's just part of the overall evaluation. Secondly, we need to to have love and belonging. We need to have human relationships. Notice that the psalmist is in exile. He says that... uh, my soul is cast down within me, verse 5. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Hermon was in the far north. There's the mountain in the far north of Israel, right on the border. And depending on what time this psalm was written, may have been actually outside of the territory of Israel and a staging ground for, Babylonian, uh, for where the Babylonians staged people. They were taken off into captivity. So a lot of commentators think this is a guy who's been taken captive from Jerusalem and he has no hope of returning and he's looking down from this mountain where they're staging people and getting ready to take them off into further exile and going, all I can do is cry out to you from afar. And what does he remember? He remembers, he looks back to the time when he used to lead. He's a worship leader. That's his job. He, he, uh, and he remembers the time that he was among God's people. And he looks back to that and says, oh, to be among God's people again. And he feels cut off from the sense of love and belonging that God has created us to have. In The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis makes this comment about one of his friends dying. He says, you know, Charles, his friend Charles, dies. And he says, I thought when Charles died, I would get more of my friend Ronald, also known as... Uh, Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien. I thought I would get more of him because I'd have more time with him. It would just be the two of us. I thought I consoled myself with this idea that even though we lost Charles, our dear friend, at least I would get more of Ronald. But the opposite happens. Why? Because you're missing a part. He's now missing a part of Ronald that only Charles drew out from him. So now he has less of Ronald because it takes a community to call out from an individual all the things that God wants to reveal through us and that we enjoy in each other in friendship. So we need, a, we need community. We need to be connected to other people. But he's in exile. He doesn't have that. He's lost it. Another, the next thing we need that we're made to need is we need esteem. He says his enemies are ridiculing him. He says that they are uh, putting him down. They're dishonoring him. They're putting him to shame, and they're putting his God to shame. Now, when I say esteem, don't hear self-esteem. <laughs> the way our culture has painted self-esteem as a thing that you need, that you just need to look into yourself, and that's where you see, that's where you get this, self, this sense of self-esteem that is absolutely, positively false. The heart is desperately wicked and deceptive above all things. Who can know it? You can't look into yourself and find What you were made to be, you need to look to Christ and see what He made you to be. But you were made your inheritance. First Peter says is Peter says in in his letter, "Your inheritance in Christ is His praise, glory, and honor." What you were made for was to be given was for Jesus Christ to to give you praise, glory, and honor. I used to think for the longest time, and I think I've said this before. that what that passage was about is that what I get, what my inheritance in the resurrection in heaven is, is that I get to give praise, glory, and honor to Jesus. And that's true. But that's not what Peter's saying. What Peter's saying is, what's going to motivate you to come out of grief? What's gonna, what's, what do you need from God? You need His praise, glory, and honor. You need the praise of the One who's supremely praiseworthy. And that is your inheritance that He's kept for you, because He's going to praise you for staying faithful, for keeping the faith. He's gonna look at you and say, well done, good and faithful sir. I couldn't be more proud of you. Just like a, a dad whose son wins the big game. Or, or, you know, my daughter did a presentation in school the other day about a book report, and she stood up and talked in front of people, and I felt like, I felt like she'd won the Super Bowl. You know, I'm like, because that's more important to me than football. But, so moving on, I'm gonna move quickly. We also need security, and he's lost that. He's lost his security. He's lost his job. He's a worship leader in the temple. And the temple, what happened to the temple in the Babylonian captivity? It's gone. He's cut off from his job. He's cut off from his security. He's cut off from his home. All the temporal things that give him security, he's cut off from so He has reason to grieve. We were made for work. We'll work in the resurrection. This is important. Work isn't the curse. Remember we talked about the curse? The pain in work is the curse. Just like childbirth isn't the curse. <laughs> the pain in childbirth, the pain of knowing you're giving birth to uh, to a child that might be the seed of the serpent, because both are going to come from Eve's womb. That's the big grief that she has. That by creating more life, you're also bringing in the potentiality of death through more human beings rebellious against God. And that's a great pain in childbirth. The grief, if, you've, if you... Know, God forbid. I want all your children that you have. I want you to get married. I want you all to have 12 or 15 kids, and I want want them all to know the Lord, and I want them all to glorify Him, and I want them all from a very young age, I don't even want them to ever remember a time when they didn't know the Lord. But that's often not the case, and it's one of the great griefs of bringing children to the world the fear that they might not embrace Jesus Christ. So, we need this security, we need this, we're made for this, but he's lost it through his employments and uh, losing that. Uh, we, also need, we also have physiological needs. This one is very important for grief because a lot of the time, your grief and your sorrow is linked to your physical body. We have dopamine receptors. We are physical things. You are what I call a psychosomatic unity. You, uh, Genesis uh, chapter uh, 2 does not say that god breathed into adam and gave him a soul he didn't pick up some dirt and make it and 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 then give it a soul he says he breathed into adam and the combination of dirt and divine breath of dust and divine breath that combination became a living soul you are a living soul you are you will live embodied forever The temporary period in between this, in between your death and the resurrection, is temporary. Temporarily disembodied. The saints in heaven under the throne—they're waiting. They're crying out. They're—they're, you know. Yes, heaven is great. It's better than here because we're separated from sin. But even the saints in heaven right now are asking God, "What? How long, O Lord? Come on already. Let's do this resurrection thing. Let's get bodies back again." Let's, bring, let's really bring justice in the world. We have these physiological needs because that's what God has made us for. And the psalmist here says, I can't eat. I can't, I can't sleep because of my grief. He's losing these physiological needs. So sometimes when you are facing grief, you need to evaluate, is this a physiological thing? Is this just connected to my body? Is my body creating this feedback loop of depression? And you need to cre- you know, build into yourself... Look at your diet. Look at your sleep. Look at your workout routine. Look at uh, how many pipes you're smoking a day. That's, that's just for me. Um, look at those things and evaluate, what do I need to change? What, what physiological things might be uh, having a negative effect on me? That's important for dealing with grief. And finally, uh, we're made for holiness we're made to be sanctified. Now, in like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and a psycholo- from a psychological perspective, they call this self-actualization. I don't like that. What they're really talking about is sanctification. What the, what God really God intends to make you into something glorious. CS Lewis, I love this quote. He says it he says if so, if you if someone, if a resurrected person just a resurrected guy, not Jesus, just somebody from the future who's, who's been resurrected, were to walk into this room, they would be so glorious that we would be tempted to worship them. Why? Because they would be like seeing God through a clear, plain window. Because that's what you were made to be. You were made to, for God's light and His glory to pass through you the way light passes through a window and it's for somebody to look at you and see God And because we're sinful, if we saw somebody like that right now, we would assume we were seeing God and try to bow down and worship them. You see that every time a prophet encounters one of these glorious beings, one of these angels who dwells in the presence of God and through whom the glory is passing. What do they try to do? What does John do? He knows Jesus. He just got done worshiping Jesus in the book of Revelation. He sees the real deal, but then he sees an angel. And once he do, he goes, oh, I'm going to bow down and worship you. And he goes, hey, stop, man. I'm just a fellow servant like you. I just happen to be holy. I happen to be... The glory of God just happens to be passing perfectly through me right now. You're you're seeing God. Worship Him. You were made for that. You need that. And we've all lost that. We've lost our sense of identity. We're broken. And we, we see this in the psalmist here. Lastly, two minutes to wrap this up. The cure for grief. Here's what we do. Here's how you evaluate. Those those six things are how you examine the six areas of life. Did I end up with six or seven? I can't remember. Six. (laughs) I didn't number them. Uh, Those six areas of life are the things that you need to evaluate. And evaluating them, you need to... Recon- that's, that's you trying to find the wound. It's like you've been shot when you're grieving. Your, sh- your soul has a wound, but you can't find it. And so that's how you evaluate and find where the wound is. Look at your sin. Look at your physiological state. Look at your uh, security needs. Look at your sanctification. That means look at your, uh, uh, your habits of grace and those sorts of things in your life. Are you being conformed to the image of Christ? Look at those things. Look at Do I have peace with God? You do. <laughs> If you believe in Jesus Christ, you do. Look at those things. But after you do that, what does the psalmist do after he evaluates? Look at verse 5. This is the refrain. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall, praise, I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. First, he, after examining himself, he takes hold of himself. He says, listen, soul. You listen to me now. I've been listening to you. I've been watching you. I've been looking for the wound. And now you're going to listen to me, buddy. And he grabs his soul and he says, listen to me. Why are you cast down? I can't find the reason. I've gone through every possible thing that I could think of for a reason for you to be cast down and sorrowful, and I can't figure it out. Now listen to me. You're going to stop. You're going to stop this. You're going to hope in God. He has promised that you will again praise Him. Even if you die, soul, even if you're cut off from this body and you go to be with Him, you're going to praise Him then. So you better buck up, get your act together. Now, He doesn't start there. And that's important. He listens first, He examines first. But then when He can't find the answer, when He can't find the bullet wound, He just grabs His soul and says, Listen to me, you're going to hope in God. So first, got to take hold of yourself. Take yourself in hand, Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Second, got to analyze your hope. You're, you're, what are you hoping in? Grief is made to reveal something to you. It's made to reveal that maybe you're hoping in something that you ought not to be. Not necessarily sin, but God has brought this into your life to reveal what you're truly hoping in. Maybe you're that grieved over the loss of your job because you were hoping in your job and not Jesus. Maybe you're that grieved over the fact that you can't find a spouse, that you can't find, you know, you've been on fifty dates and you can't find it, whatever, and you're so grieved over that because your hope is not in Jesus Christ; it's in a relationship. Analyze your hope, and then tell your soul you're going to praise Him again. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of whatever other thing you're hoping in, and look to Him and restore that peace with God. Recognize that you have peace with God. Your body's going to fail, but if you have peace with God, He will raise you from the dead and give you a body that will never wear out. Your friends may become your enemies, but if you have peace with God, you belong to Him and you belong among His holy ones. You may be lightly esteemed now, not very important. People might dismiss you and look down on you and ridicule you, but if you have peace with God, you have the praise of the supremely praiseworthy as your inheritance. You will again praise God, and He will praise you by holding fast, for holding fast to the one who's held fast to you. We have a sense that that things aren't right that you're not all you're meant to be, and you're right about that. Sin has robbed you of the glory that God intended for you. But if you have peace with God, you are the righteous man who can fall down seven times and he gets up seven times. Proverbs 24. So make every effort to take hold of the resurrection life now because Jesus Christ has taken hold of you. Forget what lies behind and press on as you, and set as your goal the prize promised by God in His heavenly calling in Christ Jesus. And I'm sure of this. He who began a good work in you will finish it. Brothers and sisters, we are God's children right now. And it's not yet been revealed what we will be. But we know this, when He appears, we will be made like Him because we will see Him like He is. All this groaning, all this pain, it will go away. And the way that you can actually begin to hope in God is to meditate on the fact that you are being conformed, you will be conformed because Jesus Christ was thirsty. He was on that cross and He said, I thirst. And what did they give Him for His thirst? They gave Him gall. They gave Him vinegar to quench His thirst. He was thirsty, so you never have to be, so that he could become a fountain of living waters. So that you could go to him and drink, and you never have to be thirsty. He will quench your soul. Thanks. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for good grief, the ability to grieve well. Pray that you would make us good grievers, that you would help us to learn to lament to take our complaints to You and to look to Christ as our ultimate hope so that we can uh, uh, listen to ourselves, examine ourselves, examine our grief, examine where this pain is coming from, find the wounds, look to You for healing, that You would give us the ability to grab hold of ourselves and to preach the gospel to ourselves, to remind ourselves of who we are in You, Lord Jesus. I pray these things through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, Father, together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever praised. Amen. Thank you.